Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Travel Medicine. This is Dr. Santosh, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Still your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J, but uh, this week I'm co-piloting. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. He gave me a captain's hat and everything. <laughs> I'm so I I'm so cheesed to be your captain today. This is so much fun. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh I I don't have a theme song or anything like that, but I was I was trying to think of some way to like make some lyrics on the fly the way that you're so good at. And I was like, oh, Who's that peeking round the biological cabinet? It's Dr. Santosh. Yay! <laughs> With the beakers and the labs, the Bunsen burners, the whole set. It's Dr. Santosh. But, Rounding uh, up the science. Every corner of the globe. <laughs> Yeah, just like that. We we are actually going to many corners of the globe today, children. I I hope you enjoy this because yeah, I I think we have articles Josh from across the world today and the reason that this is Santosh's science corner is because these what were What sort of stories coming out of his lobes? <laughs> it's Santosh <laughs> and the science corner. Da-da-da. <laughs> Exactly right. Yeah, we we found really cool articles from all over the place, and I I sent them over. And as usual, Doctor Josh, you put together an amazing, beautiful outline and scripted, and you just you know you gave me the captain's hat though, and much like the you know the little boy in airplane who got to sit in Captain Rogers' lap, uh, I I get to steer for a bit, and I I feel I feel fun about that. So instead of our usual Muppet Arms Journal Club, we have a Santosh Science Corner for you this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can do the little, you know, not not quite jazz hands, but like kind of the open hands right under your chin where you're just going to go back and forth a little. Finger guns are involved. Oh, oh, you could do finger guns. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I like to think myself of the male brown Miss Frizzle of this particular uh, science boat. Would explain why you're referring to our audience as children. So uh, <laughs> take us away. There's, story there's, number one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's start off this wonderful science corner. We're going to go around the first corner here. And, oh, Josh. It's a peanut patch. 
Oh boy, I sure hope there's a jelly patch next. <laughs> that's that's not how jelly grows there, Josh, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I I was so happy to find this. We have an amazing new uh colleague I do uh, at, at the center that I work at in pediatric allergy and immunology and she taught me a little bit about this. But I went out and I found on uh, science. So here in the United States, we have AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They give me a beautiful journal feed. And one of them was talking about Dr. Greenhot et al., H-A-W-T, creating a beautiful uh, epicutaneous, which means on the skin, immunotherapy for little kids with a peanut allergy. And this was actually a phase three trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine this May, 2023. So Josh, we have a beautiful safety and efficacy trial now. And I, I want to start out with the, the problem. You've got little kids who've got peanut allergies We've come a long way in the last few years, and the world has now changed its stance. Instead of holding off on giving peanuts to kids because we were worried about allergies, we learned that early introduction is the way to go. So as much as possible, we're trying to introduce peanuts early, but you still have kids who are allergic, and sometimes it can be dangerous, so you actually want to desensitize them. And you've got a couple of routes that you can go down. Um, the first one is actually oral. So you just grind up the peanuts, you make a peanut butter and you feed. Increase- you will eat this and like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you feed increasing concentrations to a little toddler. So you dilute it in, you know, your- like in the princess bride over the years, I slowly built up yeah. a, uh, <laughs> a tolerance. And yes. immunity or tolerance to iocane butter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Only instead of being a deadly, deadly poison to most people, it is deadly to these little kids. So in in this particular case, uh, you've got, uh, you know, oral therapy, which has been the standard now for a little while. And it's not perfect. It doesn't work you know, a hundred percent of the time. And it does require that after you complete the oral immunotherapy, that the kid constantly gets challenged with peanuts so that, you know, not, not challenged like, Oh, put them up peanuts, <laughs> but you know, that you, you keep feeding them at any point during the day, someone can walk up and hand yeah. them something nutty. Yeah. Like eat, eat this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, like a food challenge coin. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you know, you have to keep that going. Otherwise, you know, it will lose efficacy over time, but you do have the problem that that oral, challenge has to be done, you know, where you're building up the tolerance. It really has to be done in a clinic where it's safe. You have EpiPens ready to go in case you have an anaphylactic reaction, all this kind of a thing. So I said, Hey, well, we do have another immune interface, uh, you know, aside from our mouths, we have a skin interface. So what if we took some, uh, patches and we packed them full of peanuts that really satisfy. So, (laughs) So that's you're not you you're not you when you're allergic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm having the you know the commercial where you have like the Gary Busey or whatever. <laughs> so, and then they slap a patch on him, and it's like, oh, <laughs> it's just, yeah, absolutely. And he turns into a normal self. But yeah, uh, we so what we've got is we've got kids. 
And they've got a placebo-controlled trial. So some of the patches are containing uh, peanut protein and others are placebo. And you randomize the children. And what you do is you say, uh, all right, wear this patch. Okay, it it contains a little bit of uh, peanut protein, about 250 micrograms, uh, which is, I guess, one one thousandth of a peanut, Josh. Which is an acid dose of a peanut. All right, let's let's put this into context. Yeah. 362 toddlers, ages one to three. Yes. In eight countries, including the U.S., Canada, Australia, and I think the U.K. Yeah. Nearly 85% of the toddlers completed the trial, uh, with most of those who didn't, withdrawn by their parent or guardian. And then they had to wear this microdose of peanut butter between their shoulder blades where children could not reach it if they didn't like it (laughs) that yeah it it has an adhesive on it but you know kids peel stuff off so you have to plant it on their back had to do this every day without fail for a year that is an amazing amount of time to commit to giving a toddler a snicotine patch yeah You do. You have to stick with it. And of course, Josh, it it wasn't easy. So there was quite a bit of attrition. Okay. So originally 362 kids underwent randomization, 244 with the patch, 118 with a placebo patch. But ultimately, um, only about 208 in one arm and then 99 in the other arm completed the trial because there were, you know, non-adherence and withdrawing from the the protocol and and all this kind of a thing. End of it, really only, I mean, two-thirds of the children were able to tolerate a higher amount of peanut protein. But then again, a lot of children outgrow peanut allergies. Oh, yeah, over time, right? So that's why we had to compare this to placebo. And that's really, really important to make sure that, especially in a case like this, where people, children, do outgrow allergies, it does the peanut patch do better than just, you know, a sticker? Like, I'm just picturing a three-year-old sitting there, like, spreading butter on a piece of bread going, yeah, yeah, Yeah. I used to be. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. So, I used to be dependent on the peanut patch, but yeah. now look at me, look at me, and look at me now, Dad. But one of the limitations is the study acknowledged was the exclusion of children with severe peanut allergies. So you yes. had to have no peanut allergy or a very mild one. Uh, it yeah. also lacked diversity, as there was only one child identified as a person of color in each group. Um, yeah, this so. was a very Eurocentric trial for sure. <laughs> it was, you know, it was supposed to be meant for, I guess, a, a European and North American population. But as we know, that population is quite diverse. So I, I was a little bit sad about this. Yeah, there was one black kid in each of these. Um, there was a significant percentage that were Asian. So, you know, whereas about 60% in each arm were Caucasian, you know, 16 to 20% were Asian. Uh, but you're right. We were missing a lot of other uh, peoples from around the world in this, in this population. 
They didn't say what brand of peanut butter they were using. No, no, it it's was... not a. Br- stop it! You stop it now. Because <laughs> I want to know. I want to know what Choosy Doc do. Choosy Docs choose. Yeah. <laughs> no, this one is actually you know purified standard uh, peanut protein uh, that you're going to put in here. It's not going to be. Most- a- boring like yeah i know I store know. brand's name yeah i know but we have to get through this so that at the end of it you can actually have the kid taste some peanuts you know at the end of it and see who gets an allergic reaction and who doesn't and this was kind of the cool part so if we say just primary endpoint response right like how did the how did the patch do versus the placebo So the kids who got the placebo, about a third of them, 33.5%, they were actually able to tolerate well the challenge of the peanuts at the end of the thing. But the folks who were on the peanut patch, two-thirds, so 67% of that group that were analyzed, actually tolerated their challenge, uh, you know, pretty pretty darn well enough that you didn't have to worry about any kind of anaphylaxis or even you know a mild to moderate uh, allergic reaction so you know and and that trend actually followed through various different analyses now josh this is not as good as what is currently the standard which is graded oral challenge um, because with a with a graded oral challenge that we do right now you can actually get 70 sometimes 80 percent response so you know we we still have to get to you know that that kind of a level but the big difference actually in this was that the safety profile was actually significantly better than what would be expected in a child going through an oral challenge um, or an oral challenge graded response. So it's actually less efficacious in terms of banishing the evil allergy, but it is much more safe. Uh, Now, if I recall correctly, a drug used to treat peanut allergy for kids 4 to 17 was approved in 2020. Uh, called Palforzia and quickly purchased by Nestle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because capitalism. Yeah, that makes and, sense. Yeah, yeah. And it is essentially no better than uh, graded oral challenges. Mm, he's choking again. B minus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not so, a challenge like that, but yeah. <laughs> Not not a challenge like that, though. Sure, so. fine. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Because we were doing a antigen challenge, right? Like we were, in this case, by skin, uh, trying to challenge these kids so that they trained their immune system in order to slow their role when it came to anaphylaxis. We really couldn't select patients who had a history of severe peanut anaphylaxis. So meaning that they had a history where they had peanuts before and they needed to be rushed to the hospital and maybe even put on a breathing machine for a while because their throat closes up or something like that. So we couldn't really get past that at this point where those kind of kids could be approved to be trialed on this. So we really don't know how this will do for severe allergies, but for kids with mild to moderate allergies, it seems to be a fair alternative if they, for instance, don't have access to the oral challenge method. All right. Well, my spiritual Mario brother, why don't you uh, take us down the pipe 
of medical research and into the next story. Wahoo! So yeah, let's talk shrooms. And let's talk about an evil, evil shroom. Uh, No, I'm not talking about Goombas. I'm talking about the death cap mushroom. It's a me, Amanita Valoides. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Amanita Valoides, exactly. The world's most poisonous mushroom, okay? And this this little bugger is responsible for about 90% worldwide of mushroom-related fatalities, which, okay, that's not a massive number of fatalities (laughs) compared to (laughs) some big baddies like COVID. You don't get... You don't get the name destroying angel mushroom for nothing, though. Yeah, that's true. Yes, this is true. And uh, but the the big problem with death caps is that, especially for people who are, you know, they're going out and they're amateur harvesters, right? Because they want to try for the first time. Oh, I want to try naturally harvesting truffles or other mushrooms and things like this, and they catch a death cap. And number one. There is no cure, really. You know, if they're ingested and that phylloidin, that that uh, poison starts doing its work, you're going down. A lot like our friend tetrodotoxin with pufferfish, and you know, it's it's this a scary bit. Uh, there is no cure, or is there? Yeah, <laughs> your story may just indicate otherwise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you know the the other problem is that a lot of the time you're out in the middle of nowhere or you have symptoms that are well you know it it may look like other poisonings and this kind of a thing and the person can't tell you oh i ate this mushroom and this kind of a thing and they're already dying so the death's cap mushroom belongs to a family known as the lethal amanitas which would make a fantastic band name (laughs) yeah it, it comes from its genus amanita right so the toxin is alpha Amanitin. Now, I'm going to need a moment to yes. tell you about it. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It attacks the liver and kidneys, which essentially stops the cells in those organs from making protein, and everything grinds to a halt, which means unless you get some form of treatment, as far as we know, which doesn't exist, your kidneys fail, requiring dialysis, your liver fails, meaning transplants of organs were the only kind of known solution. Until a team of Chinese and Australian scientists may have found a possible antidote. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited by this because it's not only an antidote that's, you know, hey, we can actually combat this thing. And what are we talking about? Worldwide, 10,036 exposure events, right? 38,000 illnesses and 788 deaths between 2010 and 2020. So not a small problem. Okay. But here's the fun part, Josh. It looks like, you know, the, the toxin inhibitor is endocyanin green, which is a pretty commonly used like food coloring. And also used to diagnose diseases in the eye. Oh, yes, absolutely. So we already know that it's biocompatible, which is awesome. So this group of Chinese and Australian scientists basically used CRISPR to brute force an antidote yeah. to death cap poisoning. And, and what that means is we have completed research or completed the 
how do you say? Uh, we have completed sequencing of the human genome. Yes, yes. So, and we don't have as many examples of human genomes as we want to, but our bank is getting, you know, more and more robust worldwide by the hour. It's ridiculous. So this research team took several human cells and edited them to break them into individual. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, genes. Gene A, B, C, and so on. Then they gave each of those genes this death cap toxin to see what survived. And one of those surviving plates was noted to have a broken gene called stt3b yeah i it's very uh you know easily named and it, it helps us remember no no it's, I'm, I'm sorry don't mess <laughs> with don't mess with the stt3b on gene 23 <laughs> actually i can't verify what gene it's on but yeah. um, or in chromosome you're saying yeah yeah uh <laughs> So the team then used a computer program to look for any FDA-approved drugs that might block this STT3B from working. So they basically went to, you know, Scholastic Google and said, well, rather than developing something, is there anything that already exists that we can use? And they did find a match in this compound, indocyanin green. They, in typical scientist fashion... All made eye contact saying, we have to test this, turned around and gave it to mice. Four hours after poisoning, it increased their survival rates by halting liver damage. Uh, now, this is exciting less for the mice, but more because this is a new way to let CRISPR kind of do the work of the drug research and development, saying, is there anything we already have that could accomplish this? Yeah, I the methodology in this case matters much more so than the actual results although the the results are very very encouraging that yeah the, you know when we were able to you know feed these mice icg uh, indocyanin green and then challenge them with amanatine, right? An alpha amanatine poison that they did better. They survived, and then their liver enzymes uh, were, you know, much more robust, uh, you know, and, and healthy than the the mice that didn't get the inhibitor. Um, and Josh, you know, the 
they didn't all live, unfortunately. Uh, when you feed just the the poison to your mice, a hundred percent of them die eventually, about at thirty days. Um, actually, only after about eight or nine days. But you know, fifty percent survival, which is a fifty percent improvement from zero for sure. <laughs> so, so we're still a ways off from seeing this in human use, and you probably. Uh, really should only go with expert mushroom foragers or not eat random things you find in the woods. Yeah, both, yeah. Are good, both are good <laughs> options. Both are good. But please do look forward to CRISPR screens, so genome-wide CRISPR screens being used in this fashion paired with supercomputers and you know computational analysis to find drug targets uh, and compatible either inhibitors or activators or whatever it is so that our process of drug discovery goes a lot faster. And I'm hoping, Josh, that we find a lot more of these, you know, kind of diamonds in the rough where, hey, you know what? The, the answer was inside you all along if you had had ICG injected into your eye for, you know, tracking or that kind of <laughs> The real antitoxin was the friends we made along the way. Yeah, exactly. Right. So this, so, this type of high throughput stuff, you know, we, we could be on the cusp of being able to find and, and engineer solutions to, you know, biochemical problems a lot faster than before. Now that you have uh, finished nibbling on deadly peanuts via patch. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay, fine. (laughs) Or finding distant solutions to death cap poisoning from mushrooms. Yes. I think it's time we turn to some dental health. Oh, yes, always important. And, you know, uh, people out there should know, especially here in the United States, physicians are not given good training on dental care and health. It really is, you know, it's a lacking kind of a thing in our education. Especially for bones that grow out of your face. Yeah. So, (laughs) And in pediatrics, like several rows of bones that grow out of your face. So what? Several rows? What are they? Sharks? Well, Um, so. So don't don't Google baby skull teeth. Just don't, you know, it'll freak you out. So I know you've been asking yourself, what if my toothpaste could explode when exposed to ultrasound? No, nobody asked that question ever. What is the matter with you? Nobody. Really? Okay. Okay. Well, somebody in Wuhan University in China and their colleagues asked this question. Yes. So uh, researcher, <laughs> researcher Xian Zheng Zhang okay. at Wuhan University has developed a microscopic bomb toothpaste that can be detonated <laughs> with an ultrasonic toothbrush, oh, okay. but, but it's for plaque and specifically biofilms. Yeah. So this isn't like 007, you know, James Bond carrying I mean, bomb in it his is, molar. Type it is thing. if you're a bacteria. Oh, damn. Yeah. So this is like, instead of like Skyfall or Casino Royale, this is like, you know, uh, the plaque within. The plaque who loved me. Oh, the uh, plaque. <laughs> you only plaque twice? <laughs> <laughs> More James Bond plaque than tooth puns. Live, live and let plaque. Thunder plaque. <laughs> plaque breaker. 
Uh, 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 <laughs> molar finger. <laughs> no. Oh, God. Oh, sorry. That just gave me the worst visual. <laughs> Casino placal. Maybe gold molar? Yeah. <laughs> so what these researchers in China did was create micrometer-sized capsules, which Zhang and his team named microbombs that are made up of calcium peroxide, iron, and tannic acid, what you might find in a particularly strong and magnetic cup of tea. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, of course, because tannins are naturally kind of occurring in a a lot of fruit and vegetables, too. So when these microbombs are hit with ultrasound... The perfluorohexane, which is a reactive gas, uh, or it's a reactive liquid that can rapidly become gas, causes the microbombs in the toothpaste to break apart, triggering a chain reaction converting calcium peroxide to hydrogen peroxide, which destroys biofilms, in this case, on teeth. Oh, nice. Okay. And this is much better in terms of like being a small detonation and release of hydrogen peroxide, because if you just rampantly put H2O2 in your mouth, you'd, yes, you'd clean a lot, but you'd also get a lot of mucosal cellular damage. So this please, is this is at the don't do that. Yeah, yeah. So this is in very very small quantities that get generated when the PLGA vesicles, uh, you know, which is a reactive oxygen species, right? Yes. We use re- the same kind of thing inside of our bloodstream when our granulocytes, our neutrophils, go off and they capture a bacteria and bam, and they fire off uh, in, and shoot off a bunch of hydrogen peroxide in, in teeny amounts to kill the bacteria, but everything around it as well. <laughs> so this was treated on biofilms derived from human saliva and successful, but truthfully, it may or may not be better or even equal to destroying biofilms than just a regular toothbrush. However, the concept of taking microcapsules that can then be remotely activated or detonated (laughs) with sonic waves makes it more interesting idea of how would you disrupt biofilms in more hard-to-reach places such as inside the body. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So even though this was developed for fighting the types of biofilms that coat our teeth and gums and eventually lead to tooth decay, we could potentially deliver these little particles, I don't know, into something like uh, bone or if you had like a prosthetic joint sitting somewhere where a biofilm formed. And then, you know, just a simple ultrasound machine like you get with, you know, a probe uh, to the skin. And then just, you know, gentle ultrasound waves and these little vesicles, pew, 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 and the biofilm. Ooh, golden eye tooth. I was waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. Okay, moving on. <laughs> The high genist who loved me. Oh, that's so much better. Oh, that's awesome. Fillings are forever. Filings. (laughs) All right, Josh. Um, Let's do one of the famous, uh, you know, Dworetsky style segues uh, going from tooth decay to 
Tooth decay also relates to coronary artery disease and peripheral vascular disease uh, and vascular disease in general, like heart attacks and strokes, which microstrokes can lead to dementia, but we also want to prevent dementia. So we want to keep our teeth healthy, but we want to keep our brains healthy too. And to do that, we need to go on the internet. Ha <laughs> ha! Is this what you think my segues are like? <laughs> no, no, that's I, I, I'm trying to do a, a poor man's estimation. <laughs> is, is is that how I'm coming off? <laughs> like a weird so. chain of unrelated events finally landing on the subject at hand? No, never. What are you talking about? Yeah, internet usage is correlated with you know less dementia <laughs> so all these studies that we bring you every week the mere act of searching for the bizarre corners edges of nowhere in medicine may help stave off dementia later on in life yeah and a uh, fair kind of warning i guess ahead of time before we leap with uh, both feet into these troubled sketchy, waters sketchy science warning sketchy science warning this is a it's it's a well done study i think using a, a really well defined cohort in the united states and examining uh, with good statistical models but this is a correlational study so this is not one of these where you can prove causation really well, but I will say, Josh, that it was well analyzed and the the effect that we're seeing or the correlation that we're seeing is quite powerful. It's it's a neat one. So tell us about the study. What? Well, yeah. Tell us about the one question survey. The <laughs> Yeah. So what we have is there is a large study called the Health and Retirement Study. This is an ongoing longitudinal survey. So you really just have of adults 50 years and older. Yeah. So, uh, you know, anybody who's past their, you know, half centenarian mark. Lord um, help you if you say prime. There you go. <laughs> So they are, uh, they're sampled and basically every couple of years they're followed and given a list of questions to answer. So this is pretty much all survey or interviews over the phone or something like that, along with, uh, demographic characteristics, uh, race, age, sex, all that fun stuff, health, and then cognitive performance. And this kind of population is available as a pool for analysis. And essentially, in this particular case, uh, they used the modified telephone interview for cognitive status, or TICSUM, and they basically asked some questions to see how the person is doing cognitively. So you're basically testing dementia over the phone. And then you're asking for self-reporting on the other side, how long they are on the, uh, the internet, as well as Josh, several other exposures to look for, you know, covariates and other confounding variables and things like that. Right. So, so we have their, you know, educational status, their marital status, their income, how the rest of their health is going, although it's, it's self-reported. <laughs> And then, so they uh, basically sent him this huge thing and looked at the answer to the following question. 
yes. question, singular. Singular. Do you yeah. regularly use the World Wide Web, okay, boomer, or the <laughs> internet for sending and receiving email or any other purpose, such as making purchases, searching for information, making travel reservations, watching TikToks, not one that was included, maybe should have been. <laughs> but the analysis included 18,000 adults age 50 to 64, who I would like to point out, did not have dementia at baseline. Right, right. And responded to at least one survey over the 14-year period that the study was carried out. Yeah. Once you responded, they would follow you every year, not on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Or or not, you know, like hiding in the bushes, but they'd call you back. (laughs) Until you stopped completing the survey. Yes. Or... They had followed you for about eight years. Right. Now, Josh, there was another question. So uh, about 11,000, you know, members of this survey answered the question of, you know, I I have, you know, some internet regular use or something like that. There was a secondary question where only about 4,000 respondents came in and they were able to say, oh, I spend, you know, no time at all on the computer or anywhere from like, you know, 0.1 to two hours, two to four, four to six, six to eight hours per day. So they were able to get, you know, some of these respondents so that they could get kind of a a dose dependent relationship on dementia, which was kind of neat. Overall, about 65% of participants consider themselves regular internet users. Yeah. And of those, about 43% had a reduced risk of dementia during the follow-up period, which was cumulative. So for every survey period where they reported they were regularly using the internet, dementia risk continued to drop by about 18 to 20% for that year. However, it's very vague. I mean, we don't know what kind of websites they're looking at. Are these people playing online chess, you know, <laughs> sure. making pin boards, bidding on eBay or browsing internet porn? <laughs> and the opposite is possible as well, Josh, in that if these folks were already cognitively intact, meaning maybe they didn't have a dementia risk to start with. So they're with it, they're capable and everything. And, you know, they're bored or they're stuck at home or anything like this. So what are you going to do, especially if you're disabled to any degree and you can't walk or move around, you're going to, you know, nowadays be on a device of some kind if your mind is still working and clicking along. So I don't think it's fair to say that one led to the other. Um, I think it's fair to say it was a pretty solid correlation trying to find like a dose related dependent. So meaning that like the more time you spent on the internet, the less risk of dementia you had that didn't work out. So the folks who were on there for like six to eight hours didn't necessarily have a lower risk than people who are on there for like a couple of hours. That's what I said. They need to be looking at what are the websites or to what use is the internet being put yeah. in those people? Uh, because wouldn't it be funny? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's it for this week. Unless you have anything else hidden in that corner, Santosh. Oh, no, no. I, I'm going to, uh, you know, slink quietly away, uh, you know, behind this 
rack of conicals right here. Yeah, Those yeah. were some great ideas, Santosh. Go stand in the science corner and think about what you just did <laughs> until the next time we come back with more of Santosh's Science Corner. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, use the internet lightly and look for, you know, brain stimulating things. Brush your teeth. Uh, don't eat death cat mushrooms and, you know, uh, have, have some peanuts. <laughs> so that's it for this week. I feel like Eeyore, the old gray scientist, right? Now. <laughs> like, <laughs> As yeah. always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. <laughs> well, I suppose you can brush your teeth if you wanna. Probably won't help, though. <laughs> the, the, peanut, the peanut butter patch had some promise. Not as well as the oral challenges, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Eeyore and friends. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta bring out... Okay, we're gonna bring out sad researcher Eeyore more in the future. Tell us what you guys think. (laughs) (laughs) And until next time, as always... Uh, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm. Find some place that looks interesting. And when you've done all those things, happy travels. I mean, you're probably going to get diarrhea, but you know. <laughs> <laughs>